I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, a very appropriate uh, text for Christmas, and, uh, and I'm not just being like Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who was a preacher in London in the 60s, 70s, and uh, he would never steer away from preaching through whatever book he was preaching through uh, during any holiday season, and whatever holiday came up, whether it was Mother's Day, he would always say, this is a perfect text for Mother's Day. And, uh, you know, men have not had anything to do with Mother's Day. But we'll have some application that does with, to do, has to do with Christmas in this text uh, from Acts chapter 5. Well, just to set the context, before us today in uh, these latter uh, two-thirds of the chapter of chapter 5 of the book of Acts, we have the response of religious leaders in Jerusalem to the apostles' teaching and preaching of the gospel of Christ and the subsequent growth of the church so that they have continued to preach the gospel and teach it in and around Jerusalem and the church has continued to, to grow. And in particular, you will notice that it is the Sadducees who are upset with the apostles. Now, the Sadducees were a party... Uh, in, uh, in, amongst the religious leaders, they were the largest party, uh, of, that composed the Sanhedrin or the council that, uh, governed Jewish affairs. The hallmark of the Sadducees, they were kind of the liberals of their day, the, the biblical liberals of their day. Their hallmark was that they did not believe in resurrection, that when you died, that was it. There was no resurrection from the dead. Now, the fact that Jesus Christ was being proclaimed as risen and continuing to work by building up his followers through the apostles, that enraged them. They didn't like it one bit. And their anti, this, this anti-resurrection theology that they had was being blown up by Jesus. And uh, they didn't take to that very kindly. Let's, let's read about what happens now from God's word. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word this morning to us. Well, the passage before us today is the first recorded physical persecution of the followers of Christ. Chapter 4 records for us an imprisonment and hearing after Peter and John's encounter with the lame man, but they're only harassed at that point and admonished not to teach anymore, preach anymore. But the disciples are not intimidated by these threats, and so they continued to proclaim Christ. But here in chapter 5, the intensity of the opposition is ramped up as they are beaten for preaching Christ. Well, what is the issue? What's the problem here? Why is there, why is there a controversy uh, between the, the people who are proclaiming Christ and the religious leaders of the day? Well, the most important activity that is being challenged here in this chapter is the preaching and teaching of Christ. Or we might say the preaching and teaching of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. These leaders want to silence the disciples of Christ. They want to shut down the movement, to stamp it out, to nip it in the bud. If you look at verse 28, they say, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. To the opposition, it is the preaching and teaching of Christ that is scandalous. They thought they had snuffed out this movement when they crucified the leader of it, when they crucified Jesus Christ. But as Luke tells us, Jesus has arisen from the grave. He has has ascended to heaven. And from chapter 1, we find that he is continuing to work. He is continuing his mission through the preaching and teaching of his disciples. That's very important. He builds up his kingdom. He's building it despite efforts to subdue it. And he builds it by conquering people's hearts. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, He is conquering people's hearts, and he conquers people's hearts through their submission to the gospel as it is proclaimed to them. 
That's what's going on here. Look how this issue is highlighted throughout the passage. How Luke communicates the story to us is, is indicative of the issue at hand. When they arrest the disciples, they are freed by an angel. And, and what does he tell them to do? Oh, you know, you've been in prison. Go take some time off and, and uh, have a break. and go get. No, he doesn't say that. He says, go to the temple and preach some more. And then when they are... Uh, when they, le- they, they, when they go to the temple and at daybreak the people are gathering for the morning sacrifice, they are preaching there, uh, they are continuing to teach, and then they're brought back to the council. And when they are uh, admonished again for teaching about Christ, Peter answered them with teaching about Christ. You see it there in verses 29 and following. He says, we must obey God rather than men. And then he goes off on a teaching about who Jesus is and and what happened to him. And and now uh, he is giving repentance and forgiveness of sins. See, Peter can't stop teaching about Jesus even when he's facing those people who are trying to help him, uh, get him to stop teaching about Jesus. So the Sanhedrin has them beaten. And, and solemnly warned not to teaching this, teaching this name anymore. And you look at the, the last verse of 42. What a comprehensive statement it is. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You just want to say, yeah, there you go, you know, uh, you know, take that, Sadducees, every day. From houses is privately and publicly in the temple, proclaiming it publicly, and even going from house to house privately, teaching every day about Christ. They did not cease, even though they were ordered to do so. And that brings me to the point uh, what I'm making today. God's mission for the church is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. God's mission for the church is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to draw a few inferences from that, three inferences from that. But that's really the the main point that we gather from this passage. God's mission for the church is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is vital to note. We must understand this. There is nothing more important to the church than the preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ and proclaiming him, proclaiming the gospel. Why? Romans 1 tells us, Paul tells us, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is the power of God for salvation. People are saved from their sins by the proclamation of the gospel as they hear about what Christ has done in his life and death and resurrection. And they hear about how they should uh, respond to that with repentance and faith in him. Their lives are transformed. They're changed. Their sins are forgiven. They're cleansed. They are, they are taken from darkness into light. As Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
So preaching is, is uh, important. Teaching about Christ and proclaiming Christ is of absolute importance. If, if people don't hear, they can't respond. So it's imperative for the church. He goes on to say, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Hearing, you have to hear it to respond to it. In that passage we read uh, from Isaiah 55 in our assurance of pardon, God says, I send forth my word, and it accomplishes my purpose. It will not return to me void or empty, but my word goes forth and it does something to people. It changes people's lives. Well, three inferences quickly that we have from this. If this is true, if the church, and that's what we saw in the first century church, the church's mission is to proclaim Christ, then number one, the church should doggedly, adamantly embrace and proclaim the gospel of Christ. If, it's, if that's the mission that God has for us, then we should do it. To hold and to preach the true faith or doctrine of Christ is the only sure and infallible note or mark of a Christian church. That's what makes us a church. A church is created when a group of people who have embraced the gospel begin meeting together. They're a church. They're an assembly of people who have put their faith in Christ. They assemble because of their faith in Christ and what he's done. And they exist to continue to proclaim that, to give glory to God by proclaiming that message uh, each week, corporately in worship, and throughout the week and all the time as they tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what we find happening in chapter 5. The disciples have been ordered not to speak about Christ. And this is the second time they have been imprisoned for witnessing of Christ. They have been beaten for preaching and teaching the gospel. And does this stop them? No. Every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease to proclaim Jesus Christ. They had embraced the gospel. They had embraced Christ as their Savior and Lord. And now they are determined to speak of Him uh, to others. They had experienced the power of salvation for themselves. The person of Christ had come into their lives and they had experienced the change, that transformation of their lives, forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. And now they couldn't help but share it with others. And it's also the reason this church exists. This church was founded in 1891 by a group of people who had repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ. And now they wanted to form a church and, and worship Him together. And they wanted to share it that message not only with one another, but with the world. And they've been doing that. We've, we've been doing that. To be a member of this church, all one has to do is to give us a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, to embrace the gospel. You don't even have to be a Presbyterian to join a Presbyterian church. You don't have to believe all the nuances of Presbyterian theology. All you have to have is a, is a believable, credible profession of faith in Christ. The gospel. The gospel is what makes a church. It's what makes a church member. It's the reason we exist. To embrace and proclaim it. And when we stop doing that, we stop being a true church. So therefore, all of our activities, whatever they might be, they need to serve that purpose 
of preaching and teaching Christ, whether it's children's church or Sunday school or youth group or, or uh, supporting missions or even having a fellowship meal. Somehow these activities should serve our greatest purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Now, that puts a burden on us. We, we are called to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We're called to be witnesses just like the disciples were. And we tend to do, to share good news with people, but really only with those we think are interested. If I saw my brother today, who like me is an Auburn graduate and he's a fan of the sports teams, I would mention to him that the Tigers won their basketball game last night against Xavier University. Uh, double overtime thriller. Uh, we weren't supposed to win, and we won anyway, and, and we would rejoice together about that. It would be good news for us, but I didn't share the news with, uh, with anybody else, because you probably won't, don't care about the Auburn-Xavier score of the, of the game, or who actually won. And I certainly wouldn't share it with any of my friends who are Xavier graduates, though I don't have any friends who are Xavier graduates, because it would be bad news for them. They wouldn't appreciate having that wound brought up again. I didn't even share it with Sarah this morning, even though she's an Auburn graduate, because she doesn't care that much about basketball, and I didn't think she would be that impressed. So it wouldn't be it wasn't good news for her, or any Xavier graduates, or any LSU or Mississippi State or Ole Miss fans, or any other fans out there. But I would like to talk about it with my brother, because he would appreciate it. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is different than a basketball score. It's, it's different than good news about your sports team because it is applicable to all people. What did, the, what did the angels say to the shepherds? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, gospel, of great joy that will be for all the people. The gospel is for all the people. Now sometimes we think, well, that person's really not interested in the good news about Jesus Christ. And we think kind of like I would think that you wouldn't be interested in the Auburn score, so I'm just not going to tell you about it. But the gospel is for all people, and I think we'd be surprised if we went forth with boldness and with love and shared this message of salvation that it has application to everybody, every human being. Everybody is a sinner, whether they recognize it or not. And everybody needs salvation, whether they recognize it or not. So the message of the gospel has supreme application and universal application. All need to hear it. And we are called to share it. Now, quickly, number two, inference number two from this, we should not be surprised by opposition to the gospel, to proclaiming the gospel. Our enemy wants to stop us from doing this thing. You know, the, the Sanhedrin, the opponents uh, of the disciples, they wanted to stop the disciples from preaching and teaching about Christ. And they were right to attack there. If they could just shut these guys up, then the movement would die out. They rightly identified the most important matter. Now, as a church... When a church stops faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, when a church stops valuing 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, when a, when a church compromises the gospel of Jesus Christ, then Satan has won the battle. The church might as well close the doors because that is the purpose uh, for which we exist and for which we operate. In a war, generals will look for ways that they can create vulnerability in their enemies. In World War II, I just finished reading the Unbroken, the story of Louis Zamperini that's about to come out as a movie uh, at, on Christmas Day. Uh, he was a POW in, in uh, Tokyo uh, towards the end of the war, and uh, he was able to witness overhead uh, when the, the Allied came in and, and all those B-29 bombers, I think uh, over a hundred of them, bombed Tokyo. And of course there were some fighter, fighter planes from uh, Japan that came and, and opposed that force. But then shortly after that, he noticed that these B-29s were just starting to fly over without any opposition whatsoever. The Allied uh, forces had had uh, gotten naval supremacy and they had gotten uh, air supremacy. And so Japan lay completely vulnerable. Their defenses were down and it was just a matter of time. As Louis Zamperini mentions, he knew that the war was coming to an end. They had become vulnerable. They had become powerless. When a church loses the gospel, it is powerless. It is, it is through and it's just a matter of time. A church may be packed to the gills. And there are a lot of churches that are absolutely 100% packed today who don't preach the gospel. It's a grand waste of time because the gospel is the most important thing. Satan wants us to stop doing it. He wants us to compromise the message, to water it down. Uh, as he told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. And that's a pretty solemn a serious charge that he's making to Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We see it happening all around us. But we need to be, remain faithful even in the face of opposition to the gospel. Don't be surprised that the gospel is not cool. It's never going to be cool and it's never been cool. And a lot of people reject it and so we're tempted to say uh, we need to adjust our message to make it more palatable to people so that, so that it will be uh, acceptable in our society. But we're only watering it down. It's not going to be cool. It's not going to be fashionable. The gospel never has been. It's always been a stumbling block. Don't let that be an excuse for not repenting and turning to Christ either. That, you know, none of the cool people do it, so I'm not going to do it. There will be a lot of cool rejectors of the gospel who won't be so cool in the fires of hell. Expect opposition to the gospel. It probably means you're doing something right. Now finally, and really, really quickly, I've got to share number three because it really is an encouragement to it, and that is this. It is God's mission that the gospel be proclaimed. And it's going to be opposed, but it cannot be thwarted. It cannot be thwarted. As Gamaliel himself said, 
If it is of God, verse 39, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And that is the truth. He, he nailed it on the head and they accepted what he was saying. Uh, they may not, might, may not have liked it. But they, and they probably thought, okay, it's going to die out like these other movements. But here we are, 2,000 years later, still preaching the gospel. And it's going to go on. And as Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he builds it through the preaching of the gospel, through the teaching of the gospel. And, and for when people embrace the gospel, Satan has always tried to stamp it out. From the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, he was trying to thwart it. When Jesus Christ was born, Herod tried to kill him. That was Satan at work. You can read about it uh, in symbolic language in Revelation 12, uh, where it talks about uh, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This is a, a symbolic of the church throughout all time, the Old and New Testament church or assembly of people of God. And it tells us that she was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. This is Satan. Seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. This is the fall uh, of, of Satan and, his, and, his, and the, and the uh, angels that followed him. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, Jesus Christ. So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And that's what Herod was up to. He was trying to devour this one who was born. But she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension of Christ. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. That's the period in which we live ever since Christ has ascended where Satan is uh, after us, but we will be nourished. God will continue to supply his church with what it needs until the war arises and the dragon and his angels are cast out, thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You get that? They have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb. That's the gospel. And by the word, the proclamation of it, the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. That's the disciples. They love not, you know, they could be, you could beat them, and they all were, would uh, die uh, under persecution, except for John, who was in exile. They were all uh, tortured and imprisoned and beaten for their faith. But they conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, by embracing the gospel and proclaiming it to the world. May God grant us the grace to do so as well. Let's pray together.